From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first lesson this morning comes from the 78th Psalm. Listen carefully for the word of the Lord. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. In the sight of their ancestors, he worked marvels in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zon. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all night long with a fiery light. He split rocks open in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. And from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that it, at that name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Once, many years ago, I was given an incredible gift by the church, both the local uh, congregation and the denomination, the PCUSA. It all started when I was sitting in my dorm room over at Columbia Seminary. In my memory, I was studying theology, but the reality is it was a Saturday, so I was probably just watching television. My phone rang. It was Doug, an associate pastor from my church um, in Kentucky. And he asked me if I was willing to go on a short-term mission trip. He 
explained to me that the senior pastor, uh, Dana Jones, had challenged their mission committee and through them, the entire congregation, to do more than just send money to our mission partners overseas. They needed ambassadors to go and do the work of Christian discipleship in the world. And Doug explained that they'd come up with a list of purpose, uh, persons with appropriate you know, faith conviction, spiritual maturity, clarity of Christian discipleship, et cetera, et cetera. He was really buttering me up. I realized in hindsight that the people they chose, and there were two others, well, the three of us were all students and therefore could take a leave of absence from our studies without losing a job. But it still felt nice to be considered, even if that's the reason I was on the short list. Doug then said, we're going to send you to Malawi. And I said, I'd be honored to go, thank you. I'll see if I can figure out how to work it out. And we hung up and I went over to my bookshelf and pulled down a dictionary that I have that I know it had an atlas in the back and looked up Malawi because at that point I had no idea where in the world it was. Well, I say this was a gift because that trip to Malawi has really changed me. I mean, yes, I was already on the trajectory to be a pastor, but this is not an exaggeration. I think of that trip at least once a day. I believe it really shaped who I am. For instance, if I go to Publix and I get there and they don't have the brand of bread or the type of bottled water that I prefer, uh, prior to that trip, I probably would have marched over to the manager and demanded that they have my particular product in stock. But now I think of small children sitting on the dirt outside of their church schools, eating a bowl of fortified porridge that was probably the only meal they were going to have that day. Or when I'm sitting in the doctor's office and my 145 appointment has rolled around to 215 and I'm still not back to see the doctor, my mind will flash back to the hospitals there where I saw scores and scores of TB patients lined up on beds and sometimes on the floor with maybe one doctor or one nurse to attend to them. Truly, we are blessed with abundance here. But in addition to the, those memories, I also met this amazing couple, John and Betsy Mann. They were missionaries from the Church of Scotland. He was actually an Irishman. He grew up just outside of Belfast, but he was Protestant. And so when he felt the call to ministry, he went to study divinity at the University of Edinburgh and then later did a doctorate here uh, Union Seminary in Virginia, and that's where he met Betsy. She was from North Carolina. And when I met them, they were in their late 60s, and they'd been in Malawi for about a decade. Before that, they'd been stationed in Lebanon. Uh, they did have an adult son. He's a Presbyterian minister in Scotland to this day. And except for the years when he was growing up in Scotland, uh, they spent the bulk of their adult lives together spreading the gospel in foreign lands. Now, he really had no business taking me under his wing. I mean, he was Church of Scotland, I'm PCUSA, and I was there through the PCUSA. But through an accident of the calendar, I landed in country as the American missionaries left to go back to the States for a fundraising tour. We literally passed each other in the Lalongwe airport. But soon after I met the mans, uh, John asked me if I'd like to help him, help him with his ministry. And so... I said, yes, what do you do? And it turns out he was a chaplain for 12 schools, middle and what we, they, we call them middle and high school here. Um, they were primary and secondary schools there, uh, very British. But he would travel around to these schools and also one prison school and was their chaplain. And mostly what he would do is put on worship services 
uh, student-led, um, but he would preach to them. And I jumped at the opportunity because mostly I was stuck to what I could do on foot, and that really sort of limits your range of motion in a city. So I um, got with him and rode in his car all over the countryside. And we spent most of our time, I think, in the car traveling from place to place. And he would tell me about his life and being a minister and a missionary and his passion for what he and Betsy were doing. Um, and, and even though he just had a few short hours at each campus as we would get to different schools, he had this really effective ministry. The kids loved him. He was this really lovable guy. He was really kind of quirky. He sort of reminded me of Professor Calculus in the 1010 comics, if you know that character. Sometimes a little absent-minded, a little daydreamy, but he loved what he did and he had this wonderful rapport with the children he worked for. Um, favorite students became dinner guests at his and Betsy's house. Um, if they saw someone who was particularly precocious, a really good student, they would mentor that child, um, help them find scholarships, and in some occasions, uh, international college opportunities. John had this ring of curly white hair around his head. He was bald on top. He wore wire-rimmed spectacles. He often wore shorts in the heat. And for some reason, the African sun never seemed to tan his impossibly white knees. He was taller than the average Malawian, and so he stood out whenever we were out and about. He was wiry and full of energy. He loved hunting rare orchids. And on the weekends, he and Betsy would take me out into the countryside, and we'd scour mountainsides looking for these orchids. And even though I was in my 20s and in the best shape of my life, I still had trouble keeping up with him as he bounded up the mountain slopes. Couple that with the gentlest disposition you could ever imagine, and you see why the children loved him. Well, one day we were in his car, and he said, Rob, we're going to go visit a new school, new, new to my ministry. Um, he'd only uh, recently adopted it, and he said, he told me that the youth fellowship had not yet had a chance to build up to what he expected. And so he said, we might not have enough students to do our ordinary program, so we might just do an impromptu Bible study. And sure enough, when we walked into the school where we were normally greeted by throngs of children, we walked into an empty assembly hall. We sat down. A few minutes later, three high school boys walked in. They were rather shy. John had them pull up chairs, and we formed a small circle. He started with a little prayer, and then John said to them, boys, we're going to have a sharing time. I'd like you to share with the group your favorite Bible passage, and then tell us why. Now, were I to do this exercise now, I'm fairly certain I'd pick out a passage out of the book of John or maybe the book of Acts, but I was in the middle of seminary, and I wanted to pick something that nobody else would pick. And I had just taken a class the previous spring on the book of Philippians and had written a 20-page paper on a pericope that had really spoken to me. Now, pericope is a fancy seminary word for Bible passage. And the verses I chose that that afternoon were uh, Philippians 4, 10 through 20. It's a curious little verse, and Paul uses financial language to express the blessings that God has given him. He talks about storing up a positive balance and credits. I had been an economics major in college, and so when I read this passage, it sort of jumped out at me. And frankly, it's kind of a funny way to talk about grace, but in my paper, I argued that Paul uses whatever language he needs, needed to to make his point. He wrote in Jewish terms to Jews. He was pastoral when he needed to be. He was preachy from time to time, and yes, he even got angry. 
But here, for some reason, he felt the need to drop into the language of a first century banker. And of course, he learned this in his previous vocation as a tent maker. I'm guessing that someone reading this letter was, I don't know, an entrepreneur or a creditor, and Paul knew that this person would understand this metaphor. He used the very dry language of commerce to tell a wonderful message of love and grace. Well, once I'd squirreled that away in my brain that that's what I was going to use as my favorite passage, I started listening to the young Malawian boys. And I guess I expected them to pick the sorts of things that I would pick now, like Acts 2, the birth of the church, or John 3.16, or even Jesus' birth story, the wonderful Christmas story, as their favorites. But instead, my jaw dropped as the three of them rattled off passages from their open King James Version of the Bible. Matthew 10, 28, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Revelation 20, 13 through 14, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were all judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, or 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9, in a flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, friends, these texts are for me what theologian uh, Phyllis Tribble would call text of terror. I was so taken aback that these types of passages were these boys' favorite Bible verses that I can't remember what they claim to even like about them. But when my turn came, I stuck to my guns and I, I gave them the little synopsis of my paper that Paul used any kind of language he needed to get his message across, and I don't know how they received it. But then we got to John, and I must give him credit for his wisdom that comes from years and years of pastoring came through. John turned to the boys and said he thought that it was interesting that I had chosen the same book that he was about to read from, but he had a different passage in mind and it was from Philippians 2, not 4. And I silently kicked myself for we spent a great deal of time on this pericope in my exegesis class. We call it the Christ hymn. Scholars debate if it was actually indeed written by Paul or if it was just him quoting a well-known poem of his day. But whatever, Paul is at his most eloquent when he writes about the Christian vocation in response to God's gift in the person of Jesus Christ. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then it's followed by this hymn of who Jesus was. You'd be hard-pressed to write a more concise, more complete, or more beautiful explanation of the sacrifice that God made on our behalf than you find in these six short verses. This passage is the antithesis of the passages that the boys were reading to us. Well, we close with a prayer. And John and I jumped back in his car and started heading back to the mission um, at Blantyre. And on the trip, I asked John about the theology of these young men. I said, why are they so quick, do you think, to gravitate to the hellfire and brimstone passages? And John had a, had a theory. He said that most of the preaching that they had been exposed to, even from the earliest missionaries starting a century earlier, had been focused on changing people's behavior by scaring people straight. And he said the African pastors were still sort of emulating what the early missionaries were doing, and they really hadn't yet developed a different style. It was a lot of stick, 
he said, and very little carrot. And the unfortunate thing, he said, is there shouldn't be either. The carrot has been consumed. Christ died for our sins. Christ, uh, God did this out of love. Grace is sufficient for all. And he said to me, we don't behave in certain ways to get in God's good graces. We behave in a Christ-like way because we are already covered by God's grace. I'll say that again. We don't behave in certain ways to get in God's good graces. We behave in a Christ-like way because we're already covered by God's grace. Well, it wasn't just that afternoon and one Bible lesson. I started to listen, to really listen to John's homilies that he delivered to the students and in one locale, prisoners. He'd write one sermon a week, and he'd deliver it over and over. One school might have 15 kids, another might have 75 or more. But when you added them all up, all 13 spots that he would go preach, it, it built up to a pretty sizable congregation. And he'd been doing it for a decade now. He'd preach about... God's love and our call to love our neighbors as ourselves. He'd preach about the fact that each one of those young people was precious in God's sight and that God willed for their salvation, not their damnation. You see, John cared for these children. And through this decade or so in and around Blantyre, he preached a message that was countervailing to the bulk of the preaching that was going on around him. A response to God's grace is to love and to care for one another. And I think he really made a difference for the man's introduced me to another pastor there, Harold Mbeza, and I guess you can guess from his surname that he was Malawian. John and Betsy had met him as one of those precocious students, and they had worked with him and nurtured him through the high school system there. He went off to college. He became a teacher. He got a teaching certificate. But Eventually, that inexorable call to ministry grabbed hold of Harold, and he told the man he was ready to go to seminary. And so he went to seminary, uh, he was licensed to preach there, and started uh, preaching at a church in a little village called Chirizulu. And the man set it up so that I could go visit with uh, Mbeza, so his wife and Harold and his wife and their kids. Um, this was what another friend of mine calls real Africa. No electricity, no running water, a village and a church and their pastor, except Harold didn't just preach at that church. He preached at several dozen churches around. He was riding a circuit like they used to do, except instead of having a horse, he had a dirt bike. And he took me around with me hanging on the back for dear life as we went to visit his churches. And I'm happy to report that when he would lead Bible studies or preach, his lessons and sermons were much more like John's than they were his contemporary pastors. I never once heard him invoke the word hell. He even had to make a pastoral call to a dying woman, and he decided to take me along. And when we got to her hut, he was, she was surprised to see that her pastor had what they called an azungu, that's what they called Anglos, along with her, with, with him. And so she asked if I would pray for her, and I did. Uh, we obliged her. But on some level, I also had to say a little prayer of confession, for I knew that I was just a visitor. I wasn't really her pastor. She had there in her pastor the compassionate and attentive disciple of Jesus in Harold. Because unlike me, he knew her, and he genuinely cared for her. 
And I want to pause here and point out that there's a risk of meeting and knowing people like the man's, John and Betsy, or Harold, is that we might be fooled into thinking that joining the mission field or, or riding a pastoral circuit is the only authentic way to serve God. But thankfully, in my 20 plus years of being a pastor, I've seen the members of the body of Christ embody Paul's call to let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. That is to care for one, one another in ways big and small. One church I pastored, a husband of many years went into a hospice situation and his wife told the deacons in the church, I can't be alone with him. I can't do this alone. And they worked it out that members from the church were at their house 24-7 until he died three months later. Here in this congregation, we have Stephen's ministers, persons who have volunteered and have been trained to walk alongside fellow church members who are going through crises. Perhaps it's a health issue, but it could be a relationship problem or some financial problem. Some of these caregivers walk alongside a care receiver until that person dies. Now, not everyone is called to a ministry like that, I know. But for those there are, frankly, it's beautiful. Now, these examples are kind of on one end of the spectrum, but I've also seen little acts, you know, the casserole brigade that goes into motion when there's an illness or an injury or a, right after a funeral. I've seen parishioners loan that extra car to someone whose car's in the shop. When um, I did an internship in Tennessee when I was in seminary, it turns out I stayed in an apartment that a couple owned. It wasn't rented out, so they donated it to the church. So... I could stay there. I know of a case where someone went and mowed their neighbor's grass when the husband had knee surgery and couldn't do it. Or people who drive their neighbors to doctor's appointments, um, sometimes even sitting in the waiting room while outpatient procedures are done. That can be a whole day. I knew of a man who decided to help a woman have trees taken down in her yard. She was a widow. Um, she paid for the work, but he was afraid she would not get a good deal, and so he sort of pretended to be the man of the house. Another time, I uh, had a real estate agent who helped on multiple occasions, people who were selling properties and moving into retirement villages and things. He, he would sell their house and not take a commission, just did it out of Christian love. And there was one time where the woman was adamant that she pay him, and he just turned around and donated the money to the church anyway. And here's one of the most curious things I've stumbled on in steal this. I learned of some church friends, all of them single, living alone, who agreed every single day to wake up and the first one to log on to the computer would send an email to the group, good morning. And they would all in turn, as they logged on, send back good morning, all is well. If, however, someone failed to reply, it garnered a phone call from the person who started the email chain. If they did not answer after one hour, they got a second call. And if they did not answer that call, that person called the police for a well check. And that's how James, not his real name, was found. He didn't answer the emails or calls. And when the police broke down the door, they found that he'd had a massive heart attack sitting in his chair the night before. 
But he was found within 12 hours, not days or weeks as you sometimes hear in the news. Friends, this is the church being the church, caring for one another because God took care of us in the person of God's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we may be, as the poem attributed to St. Teresa of Avila says, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks, compassion on his world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Amen.